0: It's another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. I'm Marcus Papp, joined by Reggie Rizou. On today's episode, potholes aren't all that bad. We'll explain. Plus, Weird Wednesday, Reggie's curated supply of bizarre stories from around the world. And this day in history, tragedy strikes at the South Pole. Coming up on Cool Stuff Ride Home. Well, if you've never heard of a pothole saving someone's life, prepare yourself. You're about to. In India, 80-year-old Darshan Singh Brar had been declared dead by doctors after his heart stopped. This after he'd fallen ill and consequently checked into a hospital four days earlier and placed on a ventilator. Upon, quote-unquote, dying, the medical team removed him from the ventilator and prepared the, quote-unquote, body for transport. It was during that ride from Patiala, and hopefully I'm doing that some justice, to his home near Karnal, where relatives had gathered, food had been laid out, and wood had been collected for his funeral, that the ambulance transporting him hit a pothole. Shortly thereafter, Brar's grandson, Balwin Singh, who was riding with him in the ambulance, miraculously noticed him moving his hand and was able to sense a heartbeat. He asked the ambulance driver to head to the nearest hospital where doctors declared him to be alive. Shocking. Doctors at Rawal Hospital said the grandfather is now breathing without the aid of a ventilator and his heartbeat has normalized. They can't say for certain why the other hospital declared him dead, but speculated that it may have been a technical error of sorts. Said Baldwin saying, quote, It is a miracle. Now we are hoping that my grandfather recovers soon. Everyone who had gathered to mourn his death congratulated us and we requested them to have the food we had arranged. It is God's grace that he is now breathing and we are hoping he will get better." Of course, Brower is not out of the woods yet. He's still in the ICU in critical condition due to a chest infection that clearly caused his initial discomfort and brought him to the hospital. His family is now hoping for a speedy recovery, though, as you heard the grandson Baldwin say there, while under the care of Dr. Netrapal from Rawal Hospital, which, by the way, is not the doctor nor the hospital that initially declared him dead. Reggie, I have to imagine that hospital, the one that did say he was deceased, going to have a lot of questions to answer in the near future. And eh, mistakes happen, right? I mean, that's quite a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Just to say, yeah, this guy's dead. We're going to get him out of here. And <laughs> lo and behold,
1: no, that is
0: not the case.
1: He must have looked terrible. This guy's dead. Just look at him. I um, mean, it,
0: it, it's, it's a fair point, though. I mean, I know yeah. we're making light of it to an extent, but clearly he had a pretty bad infection. Yeah that led to this. And that being said, we're talking about doctors in a major hospital. You would think there would be more than just the the, the eye test to say this guy has has passed on.
1: I'm surprised how quickly the, the family's all there ready to, I don't know if you wanna say celebrate his life or be there for his funeral. That's a quick funeral to set up.
0: I'm gonna sound naive here, but I do wonder if it's a cultural thing That's, with, I, in India. I, I,
1: I'm assuming that, but still, that's a, a quick turnaround of the ambulance isn't even at the house yet and everybody's already there preparing food and everybody's ready.
0: Yeah. My guess is that preparing a body for transport takes a little bit of time and and uh and you know, you are in India, maybe a lot of the family lived close by, but you're right, it is a, a quick turnaround. But, you know, uh, again, perhaps Indian tradition. And if anyone out there right. who's listening knows that, trust me, I'd love to be educated
1: on this. Cool stuff, commute at gmail.com. You can let us know and i'm sure they knew he was sick for a while they probably were expecting this to happen right. i do wonder if you had hit a pothole and you have do not resuscitate as one of you know what you chose or you know you don't want to be brought back to life if you get to that point does that violate the order or does the pothole have an exemption on that because you know if a doctor comes in and you have dnr on your documents and they come in and resuscitate you they can get in trouble for that but i'm, I'm assuming a, a pothole is exempt
0: yeah i'm gonna guess that's an act of god that is an exemption just speculating but if the law (laughs) reads any other way than that i would be surprised and quite frankly a little bit disgusted join us today during the jeep celebration event right now get 20 percent below msrp for an average of 15,178 under msrp on the purchase of a 2023 jeep grand cherokee overland 4x e or summit 4x e not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock
1: by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. I don't know if you remember this, Marcus, but we mentioned this profession a few weeks ago, and now it's back with Weird Wednesday. A reptile wrangler was brought in as a mother discovered one of the most venomous snakes in her son's underwear drawer. Mark Pelly, known as the snake hunter, is a snake catcher in Melbourne, Australia. He said when he got to the home, there was a five foot long eastern brown snake in said underwear drawer. The eastern brown snake is the second most venomous snake in the world. Pelly said finding the snake in the underwear drawer is, quote, not something you see every day, end quote. Now, how did it get there? Pelly assumes the snake hid in some clothes that the mother had out for a line dry, and when she brought him back into the house, the snake was in with the clothes. Now, I don't know about you, Marcus, but I'm pretty sure if I was putting away clothes in the underwear drawer, I think I may have noticed a five foot long snake, but maybe that's me. Maybe that's just me.
0: You feel like you would've, and if this is one of these ultra venomous snakes, typically they're quite aggressive too when they feel threatened. So if they're being handled, in any type of manner by a human, uh, you know, unbeknownst to the to the human in this case, within clothing, I I would have to assume they would at least make some noise. But
1: here we are, maybe it felt really comfortable and snuggly. in those nice clean clothes. (laughs) I mean,
0: snakes, snakes, always very comfortable, comfy animal just uh, love to be tucked in with those guys.
1: I mean, don't you love it when a bed has freshly laundered sheets, and you can lay down and snuggle in them? It feels good. That's one tuck, one no tuck. Okay, stay in Australia for a Weird Wednesday. Kathleen Murray of Sanford, Tasmania, just won the world's ugliest lawn competition. Again, something I didn't know was even out there. She was actually <laughs> the first winner of this dubious award. Oh, prestigious. The, the competition technically did start two years ago by the town of Gotland, Sweden, but this was the first year that it went global. Like I said, it started in Gotland, but it was a way to encourage locals to conserve water during a near disastrous drought that hit the town. The competition and other measures by residents did reduce the town water consumption by 5%. So this year's competition, though, featured lawns that were uh, competing from the US, Canada, Britain, Germany, France, and Croatia, as well as Australia. Uh, They were all up for the honor, I'm putting that in quotes, (laughs) <laughs> Murray's lawn won as it was covered in divots from bandicoots and accented with sparse patches of yellow grass and shriveled plants. Murray told the Guardian, the bandicoots love digging. That's just how they find their favorite food. Now a backyard looks like a real life hungry, hungry hippo game. I also have an echidna that helps and some chooks. Uh, if you're curious, I just looked that up. Chooks are chickens. Uh, I guess, you know, Australian. I did not know that those Australians <laughs> I know I dig it chooks I might throw that in from time to time now she added I used to think the bandicoots were a wildlife of mass destruction invading my lawn but now I see they've actually liberated me from ever having to mow it again I am all for guilt-free weekends especially since my ex-husband left with the lawnmower back in 2016 and quote <laughs> wow okay <laughs> hey you gotta look on the bright side right yeah. so What do you think she won with this contest, Marcus? I'm afraid to guess. What? A pre-owned t-shirt that says proud owner of the world's ugliest lawn. (laughs) I'm guessing she's going to have to give it to next year's winner. So
0: (laughs) You had me with pre-owned t-shirt, regardless (laughs) of what it said. Amazing. Oh, two things here. First of all, you can't be in this if you have neighbors who are concerned about their property value. <laughs> or if you live like, like I do uh, in a neighborhood that has an HOA, where you have to live up to certain standards because other people don't want their property value affected by your crappy lawn, or in this case, just yard in general, because they live in the desert. There's not much uh, for lawns around here. So I don't know if this is like a lot of rural houses that were able to do this and participate because they don't have anyone else who's affected by it. I will say this. It's an interesting way. Like, I, I feel like if you could enter people without them knowing, it'd be a great way into shaming some people to get their lawn together. That doesn't seem, that obviously that wasn't the intent here. It was a water conservation thing, but I'd love to enter some people I know back in my parents neighborhood whose homes and yards look like absolute trash maybe the shame of it all would cause them to actually take
1: some action I don't know I don't I don't want to be entered cuz ever since I had kids my lawn has definitely taken a dive so I don't want to be a, a, a entered for this award i already have enough pre-owned shirts i don't need any more pre-owned shirts. (laughs)
0: well okay look it's one thing to not have the greenest lawn on the block it's another to have it filled with divots and and uh you know god knows what else going on out there if you just let the lawn grow to be four feet tall and i i I don't know You, you you drive around enough in in any part of the country and you see some crazy looking areas and my first thought Whenever I see something like that is I'd hate to live by those people because nobody's going to
1: want to buy that house. Although I'm all for the guilt-free weekends.
0: <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Hey, like, look, you know, the ex-husband took the lawnmower. Fine. All right. I don't have to worry about it.
1: One more final story for Weird Wednesday. Uh, of course, Weird we have to take one. wild. <laughs> Wednesday, Uh, we'll have to do one of those Guinness World Record stories. Right, we got to throw one in every week.
0: Are people still like? Does it ever end with the Guinness World Record attempts? My God,
1: I don't think so. Uh, Dale Graybeard Sanders was he a pirate? (laughs) Well, kind of. He became the oldest person to paddle the length of the Mississippi River. So you're (laughs) close. A boat. I mean, raiding villages on the shore of the Mississippi. (laughs) Well, he's got the gray beard. He's ready. I did find this interesting. Uh, He left on his 87th birthday and it took him 87 days to reach his destination. Wow, you know, now I've got some respect for Dale.
0: 87 years old and doing this, that is pretty impressive.
1: He left for Minnesota, ended his trip in Louisiana. He used a 15-foot canoe and This isn't his first go through. He accomplished the feat in 2015 as well. Quote, I just couldn't turn down the opportunity to reclaim my personal record and at the same time get a new official Guinness World Record title. At least that's what he told Guinness World Records.
0: Man, I can't imagine doing it once and going, you know what, I'm going to do that again, uh, nine years later. That seems like uh, something you do once you're proud of yourself and you move on to other things but hey good for graybeard there dale got it done and uh you know his name's back in the record book
1: clearly he likes his alone time
0: <laughs> what do you do just listen to podcasts like listen to cool <laughs> stuff right home your entire way down the river that's what
1: i'd be doing i hope you have some type of uh, solar panel or something to charge your uh, player because <laughs> you have 87 days <laughs> There's gotta be something out there, right? I mean, uh,
0: to charge it up, I i don't know. I'd be doing a lot of investigating prior to making this trip to see what I could all squeeze onto this little canoe because, um, you know, between
1: that and food, I suppose food takes precedent. This day in history, well, it led to some heartbreak and I don't blame him for feeling that way. On January 17th, 1912, Captain Robert Falcon Scott reached the South Pole. He left Britain months earlier while attempting to be the first to do so. Unfortunately, when he got there, he discovered a flag had already been planted one month earlier.
0: Oh no! First of all, he's got the perfect name for being someone who traverses the oceans to the South Pole, Captain Robert Falcon Scott. I mean, that just rolls off the tongue for you,
1: but I'm curious to hear where this goes now. Isn't this
0: cool stuff ride home, not sad stuff? Man,
1: sorry, Sorry, Captain Scott. Again, they're somewhere cool. Uh, so. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, so he was one month late. It was Norwegian explorer Ruol Amundsen, who became the first man to set foot on the South Pole. To celebrate, he and his team pitched their tent on the spot with the Norwegian flag fluttering proudly above it.
0: Can you imagine getting there and you're like, well, what do we do now, guys? Well, let's put yeah. this flag up and we're going to pitch yeah. our tent and we're probably going to need to get some sleep. Maybe yeah. Maybe uh, they had some drinks. I don't know.
1: Then immediately head back home.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, we did it, guys. You proud? I'm proud. Let's get back in our boat and head for home.
1: At the time, Antarctica was the last unexplored continent and of interest to a number of countries, including Britain, Japan, Germany, Sweden, and Norway. They would compete against each other to gain knowledge and commercial opportunities in the region, as well as claiming new territory. But the geographical prize was the South Pole, the most remote spot on the planet. Scott's expedition had a dual purpose: to reach the pole for the British Empire and to explore and document the Great Southern Land. He left base camp with uh, support parties, motor sledges, dogs, and ponies for his journey south on November first, nineteen eleven. And that's when the race was on. Scott's party arrived in Antarctica January of nineteen eleven. All right, the- all
0: right. I, I got, I got to interject here because this is this is a pretty large continent, to to my understanding, right? Yes. The south Pole. Yeah. So you arrive, and you immediately see the other guy's flag? Like you just showed up in the
1: exact same spot? No, he had to get to the South Pole to see the flag. So he just arrived. It was two weeks later before he even found the flag. Oh, jeez. Even worse. It's freezing.
0: Our pets' heads are falling off. And here is the flag of a competing country. My God. The sad part
1: is, by the time he landed, the other guy had already been there. (laughs) Oh, jeez. that's right. they hadn't expected the horrible conditions they would face. The mechanical sledges constantly broke down in the freezing weather. The ponies obviously could not cope with the cold. The expedition had to carry on without them. On top of that, the dog teams turned back and the explorers had to haul the sledges by hand. Even the dogs are like, this sucks, man. We're out of the 65 members of the original expedition team. Only five remained to face the ascent of the Beardmore glacier of the uh, polar plateau. Scott, his friend, Dr. Edward Wilson, Welshman Edgar Evans, Scotsman Henry Bertie Bowers, and Captain Lawrence Titus Oates. Those were the remaining five. Tired and hungry, suffering from hypothermia and scurvy, they arrived at the pole on January 17th to find the heartbreaking sight of the flag that was hoisted 33 days earlier. Amundsen had taken a shorter route. Scott wrote in his diary, the pole, yes but under very different circumstances than those expected. Great God, this is an awful place and terrible enough for us to have labored to it without the reward of priority, end quote. Oof. The men did not stay long. With heavy hearts, they took pictures and quickly left began the 1,500-kilometer journey back They did so with ferocious winds and temperatures hovering around minus eight degrees Fahrenheit. That's what it is in Wisconsin right now. We're around that level, so I can feel that.
0: Oh, I've been there. Been there, done that, and no thank you. Evans was
1: the first to die on February 17th. Oh, no. He had a stumble behind the group, and when he slipped into a coma a month later on March 17th, Captain Oates, crippled with frostbite and believing he was holding the others back, walked out of the party's tent it was his 32nd birthday oh. scott immortalized the courageous army officer in his diary writing as he left he said i am just going outside and maybe some time we knew that oats was walking to his death it was the act of a brave man and an english gentleman end quote a few days later the three remaining men were themselves lying in the tent just waiting for death a swirling blizzard had confined them to their sleeping bags while tragically a prearranged cache of food and supplies was 11 miles away scott wrote in his diary we shall stick it out to the end but we are getting weaker of course and the end cannot be far it seems a pity but i do not think i can write more end quote from his diary there mm-hmm. eight months later a search party found scott and his two companions in their small tent on the frozen ice inside their sleeping bags his diary lay nearby they actually uh, covered the tent and the bodies Um, with some ice and snow to mark the spot. It took until 1958 for another team to reach the South Pole overland again. The team, led by Edmund Hillary, was able to accomplish that feat using motor vehicles. I know, a bit of a downer to end the show. I apologize, but I do find it interesting. I mean, that is a tough trek that I never want to take. There's a lot of adventures I'm willing to do. That is one I am not willing to do, and such disappointment to get there, thirty-three days after someone else had already been there.
0: Oh, absolutely brutal! And now I feel bad for uh, laughing about some of this at the beginning of the story. Thanks, Reg. What a <laughs> what a downer indeed. But you're right; it it is uh, it is a heck of a story, a heck of a tale. And when you talk about explorers of the early twentieth century, this is the type of thing that I, I believe most of us think of. So um, unfortunate. Uh, tragic ending. But yeah, quite the tale to tell.
1: I think you pointed out at the beginning. If your sled dogs aren't willing to make the trip, probably best to turn back.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I would love to know is what did they expect to find? What type of conditions were they anticipating going in thinking that, oh, we're going to bring horses and we're going to bring dogs and all of this will make it okay. I suppose you really don't know you're using your best guess, uh, at that point because nobody's ever been here, at least to your knowledge. And you don't have anything to, uh, to
1: base it off of. So pretty wild, tragic story all, all around. Well, as Scott wrote in his diary. This is an awful place. I mean, you can't get any, I mean, that explains it right there.
0: You know what? That's how I felt when I lived growing up in Wisconsin, when it got to be about minus eight outside, that's pretty much what I said straight up.
1: That'll do it for this edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. We had some laughs. We had some sad moments. Hopefully, you'll join us again tomorrow for another edition. Again, if you have any thoughts or comments, feel free to email us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. He's Marcus Path. I'm Reggie Rizu. We'll be back with another edition tomorrow.